poor girl. Um, I, I have a t-shirt in my hand to remind me to tell you that all of the t-shirts, all of the shirts, t-shirts, whatever's there, um, are on sale today for five bucks. We're clearing them out. We've got some new ones coming soon. So if you've been waiting, if you wanted a t-shirt, then it's time to get one. All right. They're there. They're five bucks. Here, Randy. Take that one. Trade it if it's not the right size. Um, but uh, we're grateful uh, for you guys, and this is just a great way to uh, continue to spread the word about what God's doing here at Hydrant Church. You know, um, I was talking with uh, one of our uh, denominational leaders this week, and the thing that sometimes we forget here is that you guys are doing something that nobody believes is possible. Right? You are you are leading the transformation of small church into something that is beyond recognition to a lot of people for a small church. You are operating both at this this wonderful, meaningful, connected level, but doing it with such excellence and joy and beauty that it is creating opportunities for life to be changed. And there's stories after story of teenagers up here on stage, teenagers who are working in the, uh, in the sound room, in the AV room, teenager open doors and working in our children's department today. There's a teenager right now with his arms crossed looking at his phone, I don't even know if he can hear me, who is providing security to our children's department right now. If you can hear me, Keith, you can wave. We're glad you're back there. Glad you're doing your thing. Somebody will tell you later that I just pointed you out and called you out for being on your phone. So, uh, But we're glad you're here this morning. We are um, anticipating sabbatical. She said it's our last Sunday. It's not our last Sunday ever. We will be back. We are um, taking a little break. The idea is kind of like the maintenance you do on your car to make it last longer, right? It is... Um, there's nothing wrong in our relationship, in our relationship with Anita. Even though I was on the opposite side of the room today, that has nothing to do with it. I was just feeling a little crowded over on this side the last few weeks and needed some space. Not from her, just in general. <laughs> no. Um, there is nothing wrong with the leadership. There is nothing wrong with the church. There, I'm not looking for somewhere new, and the church is not looking for someone new. It is, uh, it is meant to be a time where we can pull away from the 24-7 uh, demands and expectations of ministry and be able to refresh and come back and do it again for another seven years. Um, the wonderful joys of social media is the memories that pop up. And uh, actually, this weekend, seven years ago, we came to Goldsboro and stood in this room and led, began to lead the church for the first time. And I expressed such a place of gratitude for people who gave us a chance. And I still believe that this is a place where people get a chance, a second chance, a third chance, a 47th chance, whatever you need. There is a God who continues to be in love with us, continues to offer grace and give us more and more opportunities. And so I'm, I'm so grateful. We have, uh, I was thinking about today's message as we are finishing up our series in Philippians and, um, and I thought about this story I heard about a certain brother and sister. Um, we'll call them Noah and Sophie, but that's not their real names. I promise you it's not. This is not their story, but it just makes it easy. They're playing on the top bunk, 
And um, of course, because Noah's older, he gets to choose what they're playing. So they're playing war. <laughs> He's got his his GI Joes and his Marvel characters or his DC characters, and they're ready for battle on this side of the bunk. And on this side of the bunk is is Barbie and my little pony, ready to charge in like a cavalry. <laughs> and somehow, Sophie, with no help from Noah at all goes flying off the top bunk and lands with a thud on the ground. And Noah, knowing he'd been instructed to make sure they play safely and quietly, looks over the edge. And she looks back. You know that moment just before a child lets out that blood-curdling scream of shock and pain and what's going on? And he knew he'd wake up mom and dad. He knew he needed to do something. And and his little brain thought. And he saw she had landed on all fours. And he said, Sophie, you're not hurt. Did you notice how you landed? You landed on all fours. I think you may not be a little girl, but a unicorn. (laughs) And you could see this look on her face because there's nothing more than little five-year-old Sophie could have ever wanted than to be a unicorn. And there's this conflict in her brain between the shock and the pain that she is feeling at the fall and this possibility that had never been opened to her before of being a unicorn. She decides she's a unicorn and scrambles back up onto the top bunk with all of the grace of a baby unicorn with a broken leg. (laughs) And in that, we discover this, this simple truth. This really... Simple, simple truth. Our brains and way that we perceive things has so much power over our lives and can determine our reality. You see, the truth is that we are not, that our actions and responses and our life is not dictated by our circumstances. But our perception of the world around us will create and dictate our circumstances. There is an author, a psychologist, a uh, professor whose name is Sean Aker. And he tells us that there is this simple equation that most of us follow in life. If I work hard, then I will have success and that will make me happy. If I work hard, then I'll have success, and then I'll be happy. And we apply this to every area of life. Think about it. Parenting. If I work harder as a parent, I'll be a better parent, and I'll be happier in my relationship with my kids. We do it in our work. If I work harder, I'll succeed at work, and I'll get the promotion and the raise, and I will be happier in my work. If I work harder in my marriage, then my marriage will be better and happier. The problem with this is that as soon as we reach that goal of success, our brain moves the goal. And we never actually experience the happiness or the joy that we were created for, that we long for that we desire or think that we can get with this kind of work. There is something 
the science is starting to show us that I think Paul was on to centuries ago. As they've began to research, they've, they've figured out that if you can reverse this equation, that you end up both more successful and happier. That if you can shift your brain into positive thinking before, before you have the success, before the hard work, before any of it, that you'll actually be more productive. Your brain in positive mode is 31% more effective than in negative, neutral, or stressed. When you are happy, you do better work. Doctors are 90, 19% more accurate in their diagnosis when their brain is in positive mode versus neutral, negative, or stressed. So if you go see your doctor and they're stressed, leave. <laughs> and ask them what day is their favorite day and come back on that day. Because you have about a 20% better chance of being rightly diagnosed. We are, we are more creative, we are more intelligent, we are better at problem solving when our mind is in a positive place. And Sean Aker calls this the happiness advantage. <laughs> the happiness advantage. In fact, external circumstances, all of the things we look at that tell us someone should be happy actually only predict 10% of lifelong happiness or joy. He did his study with uh, Harvard freshmen. And you would think that these kids were so excited to get in. He tells his own story. He, was, he applied to Harvard on a fluke. He never thought he'd get in. His family had no money to pay for tuition. After he got in, he got a military scholarship that allowed him to go. And he was just so grateful to be there in all of the whole experience. That he soaked it all in with this anticipation. He thought everyone else would feel the same way about being there. But within two weeks, the joy of getting into Harvard had been replaced with the stress, fear, and anxiety of all of the work and all of the struggle and all of the classes. And his friends would tell him, why in the world would you study Harvard freshmen? Just look at their, look at their cafeteria. If you ever get a chance, Google the, the Harvard freshman cafeteria. It looks like the dining hall at Hogwarts. For those of you who are Harry Potter fans, like, do you think they have nothing to complain about? Because we look at external circumstances, we look at people, we look at those around us. We think, man, they, they have that vehicle, they have that job, that spouse, they have those kids. Man, they should be happy. And if I had this, that, and the other, then I would be happy. But in fact, External circumstances, external realities only predict 10% of lifelong joy. And we can see some of this reality when we look at the book of Philippians. Joy is this constant theme. This constant theme throughout the entire book, over and over again, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice. Again, I tell you to rejoice, rejoice in every circumstance. Here is a guy in prison who has been through his life in ministry. So he has been beaten, he's been jailed, he's been shipwrecked, he's been nearly killed. And he's now awaiting trial for his possible execution. And he is saying, rejoice, count it all joy. Even in those most 
trying circumstances, in the deepest suffering, he has joy. He has joy. If anyone knew and experienced the happiness advantage, it must have been Paul. It must have been Paul. In fact, in Romans, in Romans, he writes that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, which what he's saying is it's not about what you do. It's not about these external things. He says the kingdom of God is about three things. It's about righteousness, right? Relationships. It's about peace. Not just in me, but also in me and peace with those around us. Peace in creation, peace among all people and joy. Three defining things that he describes our faith, the kingdom of God, the way we're meant to live our lives, right relationships, peace and joy. And we make it about rules and what we do or don't do. And we don't call it eating or drinking, but it's about whether or not I went to church and I spent time in the Bible or I spent time enough praying. And we got this checklist of things that this is what this Christianity is about. And he says, no, it's about these relationships and about peace and about joy. And maybe one of those things that's missing most for us as Christians is joy. He seemed to realize that when he received his humanity back in Jesus, when he received his identity in Jesus, that something was given him that that, that could not be taken away. And it infused in him this joy in every situation. So as we kind of wrap this series up, I want to look at chapters 3 and 4 and and look at a couple of the places and ways that, that Paul found joy. And then a couple of things that we can do very practically that lead to joy and maintain that joy in our lives. So the first is this. Paul found joy in this Jesus way of life. He says, whatever was gained to me, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verse 7. He says this, whatever I have gained, whatever I've gained from my religion, whatever I've gained from being good, whatever I've accomplished, I can now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things and consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not being able to, to stand before God and be right with God because of anything I can do, is what he's saying. But having that through faith in Christ. It says, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Saying that compared to Christ, everything else was worthless to him. Everything else was a loss, was a wash, wasn't worth pursuing anymore. And when he realized that the single most valuable thing he could pursue in life was this connection to Jesus, he began to find joy in this life as it was manifest in the way it was created to be lived. That he found this joy singularly in Christ as the source of everything he hoped to be. The source of his strength, the source of his hope. And he became then the source of his joy even in loss. And he chose Jesus over everything. You see, chances are as Saul, 
of Tarsus. We never hear him go back to Tarsus. As Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a religious leader, one who was good at being Jewish, he was said to have zeal, such zeal, that anybody who seemed to, to mess up the Jewish religion, he was going to kill him. That's how much he loved it. That's how good he was at it. And he says, I, I lost everything for Jesus. Because chances are, after he met Jesus, he may have gone home. And chances are his parents disowned him. Because they would have been the ones who taught him the way. They would have taught him the zeal. They would have taught him what was needed and led him into that pathway of becoming that Pharisee. And so chances are, and we see it over and over again in first century, that as, as Jews, as men and women chose Jesus, them being separated from family, separated from home. He lost it all. Everything he had known, everything he had built in his life, all of his reputation in the society, all of the attention, everything that he had built for himself in his entire life was now gone because he chose Jesus. And in the midst of that, he says that his greatest joy, the most important thing in life, is simply finding Christ. That having found Christ and having faith in Christ, it had so radically transformed his life that everything else was just a loss in comparison. And it was pure joy. It brought him pure joy to be who he was created to be. To discover the truth that lie beneath all of the lies and the hidden things. That in this connection to Christ, we find our greatest joy. There are all kinds of things that we can do to begin to shift our mind into that happiness advantage. But we'll never fully be able to live consistently within this place of joy until we discover the Jesus way of life. Until we submit to Jesus. Then we'll be able to know a joy that's even found in participating in suffering. Paul knew the source of his identity. He knew that it was in his joy was in Christ. And that ought to stop and give us reason to think. If I'm in a season where joy is missing from my life, is it possible that what's really happened is I've become disconnected from the source of joy? I've been disconnected from the well of joy. I've been disconnected from Christ. That I've allowed myself to drift. I'm not drawing near, and so I'm not experiencing him draw near to me. Maybe I'm holding on to unforgiveness, and that unforgiveness has grown into to bitterness that continues to, to rob me of my joy. Really, it doesn't rob me. I give it away. Maybe it's simply allowing a sin to continue in our lives. That we know shouldn't be there. We're not fighting it. We're not trying to overcome it. We're not asking forgiveness. We're not dealing with it. We're just letting it fester within us. And we wonder, where is the joy that I once had in knowing Christ? Where is the joy I once knew in life? Maybe it begins as we come back into that deeper relationship with Him. Walk with Him day in and day out. The second place that Paul seems to find joy is a joy in persevering. In verse 12, this this little section here, 12 to 14, is some of my favorite verses within the book. He says this. He's just said that his goal is to attain the resurrection from the dead. His goal is this closeness with Christ. 
that, that infuses and leads him into eternity with Christ. So remember he said, as we talked about in chapter 1, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's anticipating that moment. And he says, not that I've already obtained all of this. Or have I already arrived at my goal? But I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Eyes forward, always moving forward, willing to let go of the past so that he can step into the future to be present in this moment and know what joy is. See, some of us, we've got this junk from our past that we hold on to. That, we, that we allow this baggage we carry day in and day out and it robs us of our joy. Some of us are holding on to the successes of the past. Do you know that the successes, the answers, the way you solve problems in the past are actually the things that often cause the problems you have now? Some of us, we can't enjoy now because all we can do is remember how good it was back then. It's what happens to churches all the time, right? They remember 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when there was prominence in the society, when when pastors were respected. Do you know in our culture today, people believe that dentists are more trustworthy than pastors? Inherently more trustworthy. I'm offended. (laughs) Not really. But... The world has changed, but we remember these good old days and, and we think we can go back there somehow. And he says, no, you got to let go of the past, forgetting the past, eyes forward, pressing on toward the goal for which we are called. He found joy simply in persevering everything that he faced. But it was a, it was a different kind of perseverance than most of us operate with. See, for us, perseverance means putting up with pain for a little while until we decide it's not going away and so we're going to do something different. We're just going to quit. Perseverance for us is persevering a little while. But Paul, he persevered without exception. Because he recognized that on the other side of the suffering was the resurrection. On the other side of death, there was resurrection. The good news of Christianity, the gospel, is that death doesn't have the last word. Not the death of a relationship, not the death of a dream, not the, the death of, of, of our very bodies. That on the other side of death is resurrection. On the other side of pain is hope. We just rarely get there. Right? We operate, what we, what we fail to see is that we start something. And, and Christians, we do this, man. We get, I get to know Jesus and everything is wonderful. I'm feeling forgiven. I want to sing. I'm moving from the back row to the front row or at least the second or third. And I mean, nobody wants to sit on the front row unless they have to, right? Unless they're out of seats. And then we're just, it's just great. I just can't get enough of it, right? And then after about three or four months and the excitement and the newness is worn off and you know, we get into reading something in Scripture we just don't understand. Or, even worse, we start seeing these teachings of Jesus about loving your neighbor and forgiving people. And it's like, I don't know about all this. And it gets hard. It gets hard. 
And that's where we, we move from this joy of the beginning, this vision of what life could be or what we're trying to attain. And we hit this stage, we'll just call it B. Um, it's just the pain. It just, it just is hard. It's boring. It's difficult. You know, they're, uh, they're, the, the, the bodybuilders who, who compete in this kind of thing, you'll ask, if you ask them, what does it take to get to this stage? It says, they'll, they'll tell you it takes two things. A willingness to persevere through the pain and the boredom of doing this over and over and over again. Of going to the gym for four or five or six hours every day doing the same exercises. But the payoff is on the other side of the pain and the struggle. The only way to get to the payoff, the only way that Paul knew, and the only way he describes to get to the resurrection is through the death, through the pain, through the suffering, through the disappointment, through the boredom, through that stuff. The only way that we really experience joy is perseverance. And the reason that so many of us miss out on it in our Christian life, in our church experience, in our jobs, in anywhere, is that we don't follow through the pain to the payoff. We quit. We quit. Paul could have quit. He could have denounced Jesus and gone back home, gone back to being a Pharisee, respected, wealthy teacher. Could have quit. He didn't have to be in jail. He didn't have to go through any of this. He didn't have to travel around, staying in other people's homes, teaching, making tents just to survive. He could have quit. And that's what most of us do. The job gets hard, we find another one. The relationship gets hard, we find another one. The church gets, does something we don't like, we find another one. And we spend our lives doing this right here, right? Yay, this is so wonderful. I can't believe it. I love it. Oh, this sucks. Quit. <laughs> Find another one. Right? Then we do it again. Oh, I love this job. I can't believe how great it is. Nope. They're, they're on me to work overtime. Quit. Find another one. This church is amazing. I can't believe how great it is. They're all so wonderful. They have cookies. Then they asked me to serve. Can you believe it? I said I wanted to get more involved. And they asked me to serve. Quit. Find out. Right? We get married. It's the best day of our lives. Three weeks later, it's the hardest day of our lives. Three years later, we quit. Find another one. And we spend our lives doing this over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And we don't realize that what it's going to really take to find joy is to break that cycle and to persevere without exception. To persevere without exception. To persevere through it all, through the pain, through the disappointment, through the worry, through the fear. To forget what was behind and keep moving forward. And it's not easy, but it's where we find joy. It's where Paul found joy. It's where he teaches us to find joy. Straining toward what is ahead. Persevering even through death to resurrection through the pain through the boredom through the disappointment through the fears never allowing ourselves to give up that's where we find joy 
The third place that he begins to find or teach us to find joy is in, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll tell you again, rejoice. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. Have you ever noticed the most joyful people are often also the most gentle people? The people who know how to respond in an emotionally tense situation with gentleness instead of anger. They know how to handle those around them with gentleness and care and compassion. are also the happiest people we know. He says rejoice, rejoice. Again, I just, he just keeps saying rejoice. So let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. That anxiety we have is not from God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. He found joy in choosing to trust Jesus. In choosing to trust Jesus, he was able to rejoice in situations that were beyond his control. He had no ability to control He had no ability to control what the Roman authorities were going to do to him. He had no ability to control anything in his life at this point as he lived in chains. And yet there was joy because he trusted Jesus with it all. He trusted Jesus every time he moved from one place to the next. Every time he didn't know what the future would hold. Every time that fear started to grip his heart, he submitted that fear to God. So as he prays, teaches us to pray, to pray in every situation, to ask for what we need, to thank him always, and find in that the ability to rejoice. It doesn't mean that we never worry or we never get concerned, but that we know what to do when those feelings, those emotions begin to creep in, begin to take over, that we turn to him. And we begin to submit to him the things that are beyond our control. Because there's so much beyond our control. And so little in our control. But imagine if we were to focus all of that anxiety, all of that worry, that attention, only on the things that we could control. How much better would life be? And let God handle the things we can't. Sometimes it just takes a little wisdom to know the difference. Because what then does tend to happen is when we get anxious and we can't control the situation, we try to reach out and control people, which only creates more problems and less joy. We have to relinquish our grip on the unknown and the uncertain, even when it's fearful, even when we're not able to control it. He teaches us two ways to have joy as we continue here in in chapter 4. Verses 8 and 9, he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you know what most of us struggle with? 
Most of us, most of us struggle and live with a medical school syndrome. First year of medical school happens to every single student who enters into medical school. Every week they learn about some new disease that they're certain they have. Absolutely certain. Sean Aker tells the story of his brother-in-law, the one who married the unicorn, and his name was Bobo. And he went to medical school at Yale. And he calls, he calls Sean, he says, hey, I need your help. I have leprosy. And Sean says, I'm passionate with him. But he had just gotten over a week-long battle with menopause. Some of you will get it in a minute. <laughs> we see all of this stuff in the world and own it. Yeah, if you turn on the news, every story is about pain, suffering, violence, negative. And what begins to happen in our brains is we begin to think that those news stories are representative of the ratio of positive and negative, of good and bad in the world. And we begin to see the entire world as bad, as negative, as reasons to worry and be afraid. And yes, there is pain and suffering and violence in the world. But if all we focus on is that, that's all we'll find. On the campground where our children will go to camp this year, I, uh, I worked a couple years ago at the lake, and there was a trash can by the lake. And it was covered, covered in yellow jackets every day. Every time you opened it, it's just like this whole swarm, fog of yellow jackets come flying at you. So just stayed away from it. Then there are, there are bees. And Sophie, when she, just before she entered into kindergarten, was walking through the field towards the school and stepped on a flower. And she stepped on this flower, a bee got her foot through her little flip-flop. I've never heard her scream like she did that day. But you found the bee on the flower and you found the yellow jacket in the trash. And we have a choice every day. We can be the bee or we can be the yellow jacket. We can find the bees or we can find the trash. And whatever we find is what we'll repeat and what we'll live in all day, every day. So you can live among the flowers or you can live in the trash. And it's all about what you focus on. He tells us, set your minds. Set your minds. Put your attention. Put your focus. Name. Identify those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. When the day begins, think about those things. When the day is in the midst of its most stressful moment, name those things. At the end of the day, when your mind begins to rehearse the day, name those things. You know, science is, is figuring this out. They're just starting to figure this out. Along with the second thing that he describes... Beginning at verse 10, he says, I rejoice. There's that word again. His joy in the Lord. Because you renewed your concern for me. He said, indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. 
I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of contentment in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And he says, I have this here. I can do this. I can be content because of the one who gives me strength. Sometimes we use Philippians 4.13 to say, like, I can do anything because Jesus gives me strength. No, what he's saying is I can be content in anything because he gives me strength. That's the strength he gives us. Is this contentment, gratitude that leads to joy. Gratitude and joy are intrinsically connected. In fact, Sean Aker, the, the, uh, the psychologist, the professor, he's, he started to figure this out. He realized, they did the research, they said that you can actually shift your brain. You can rewire your brain from negative to positive in 21 days in a few minutes a day. And you'd be amazed. They, they actually line out the things that you can do to shift your brain and begin to create this happiness advantage, this joy that you can begin to have the kind of joy that Paul describes and you'd be amazed what they are. The first, three times daily, or three times, three new things every day that you're grateful for. Name three things that you're grateful for every day. Sounds like contentment. Sounds like the thanksgiving that we see Paul doing all throughout this book. The second thing, journal one positive experience from the day. Because when you journal it, you relive it. Journal one positive experience from the day. I don't know. It kind of sounds like whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely and good and praiseworthy and excellent, think about those things. Write down one positive experience from the day. You'd think he was reading Philippians and just copying it. Exercise. <laughs> There's something about exercise that releases the chemicals in our body that produces joy and keeps us there. Meditation eliminates this kind of cultural ADHD that creates anxiety in us. Our mind bouncing from problem to problem to problem to problem to situation to situation to situation to situation constantly. Learning to sit still and focus on just, you know, what is good and true and noble and praiseworthy for a few minutes a day. To begin to create joy in our and then intentional acts of kindness doing something kind for someone else so every time you open up your email box the first thing you should do is write an email of thanks to someone who has had influence in your life every time you pick up your phone text someone and say thank you intentionally acting in kindness that these things will rewire our brain in just 21 days 21 days. I told you, uh, I've told you a few times that along the way, I'll come back to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where Paul writes to that church, and he tells them about the fruit of the Spirit, that when you're connected to the Spirit, these things will be evident in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. About four years ago, I was praying through this, and God said, Hey, that joy one, you kind of suck at that. It's like, well, that wasn't very nice. But he was right. He was right. It was all I was focused on. I'd come in on Monday morning, and all I would hear was all the things that were wrong all weekend long. All week, all I could focus on, all the things that we didn't have that wasn't working, that wasn't happening. It then turned into problems everywhere else. 
And what I thought about, what I focused on were those things. I didn't know how to be grateful for what was happening. I couldn't see it. And he began to teach me. And this was one of the very places I came was a Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And every night I took a journal. Every night I would take a journal and I would write one thing that was true and one thing that was noble, one thing that was pure, one thing that was lovely, one thing that was admirable, one thing that was excellent, and one thing that was praiseworthy. And it took about three months because I'm slow instead of 21 days. But eventually my mind began to shift. My relationships began to shift. And I began to be able to have joy even in the struggle. And in every situation, I was able to be present, forgetting what was behind. And it's amazing to me as I look at both this science of how our brains work and the spiritual instruction from Paul and how they completely line up to teach us how it is that we can be the people we were created to be. That we were created to be a part of this kingdom of God that is known for righteousness, peace, and joy. That it can define us. That our lives can be marked by joy. Not fear, not anxiety, not anger, not disappointment, not ingratitude. We can be marked and defined by joy. Paul teaches us how. It's so very practical. So my prayer is that we will be people of joy at Hyatt Church. That we will be known for our joy, for our peace, for our right relationships, and those things growing in us. It is possible. I've lived it. I've seen it. There are stories of it, recent stories of it in our church. You can have joy. And it's not this like some mystical thing. It's so very real and practical. But I tell you, the most lasting joy we'll ever find is in knowing Christ. In knowing Christ, it begins to change everything. And we find the strength for the contentment and the focus that produces the joy in us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this letter that Paul wrote, thankful for the impact that it has and continues to have on my life. I thank you for the the way that throughout this letter, the message so communicates the very things that I believe about our church, so much gratitude for the way that we partner together. I'm so thankful for the way that everything is done in unity and joy and hope and possibility. God, I know how easy it is in the midst of difficult circumstances and trying days and and uncertainty to have joy. But you've taught us how. And would you give us the courage to act on whatever you're asking us to do today? Maybe you're challenging us to, to pick up a journal on the way home. Maybe you're challenging us to one intentional act of kindness a day. Maybe you're challenging us to, to get back into the gym or to take that walk every afternoon. Whatever it is, would you give us the courage to act? And for those, God, in this place who need to reconnect with you, to discover what it is to have joy in a relationship with you, to discover the joy that it is to realize that everything is a loss compared to a deep connection with you. Pray, God, that they would realize just how madly in love with them you are. 
and that you are a good God of good grace who purifies our hearts when we seek your forgiveness and that by faith, by simply trusting you, you begin to work this righteousness and peace and joy in us. And so would you help us to trust you, to seek you, to draw near to you, and would it transform our lives with joy? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the things that brings me joy every week, a homemade cookie. Yeah, enjoy it on your way out. Have a great day.